Welcome to the Kotsk Podcast. I'm Jordan Wozniak. And I'm Gavin Michael. This is episode 12, The Turkish Jews Still Wave. Hello, Gavin. How are you doing today? Very well. And you, Jordan? Very well, thank you. We're recording this shortly before Pesach, trying to get an episode in before Pesach comes. And we have an interesting, this has nothing to do with Pesach, this episode, but an interesting little bit of historical um I'm not going to call it trivia because it seems to have been a really important custom, but one that I definitely had no idea of. I did not know that this custom existed, which is the custom of Turkish Jews waving at certain parts of, of davening, certain parts of tefillah. Maybe you can give us a bit of a background about this. Well, this is one of the fascinating things that I find with our um, podcast, Jordan, is we many interesting concepts and ideas within Judaism, many of which I've never heard of my, myself, but for me I find it a source of uh, intrigue and fascination. So I've based myself on the research of Rabbi Dr. Levi Cooper, and um, he talks about a very strange custom, or unusual custom, unusual for us, not for them, that Turkish and Syrian Jews had where just prior to the commencement of the Amidah, they would go through a particular um, custom. They would perform a custom. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they would hold their palms facing towards them with their fingers facing upwards. And they would move their hands back and forth three or four times, mimicking a wave as if they were waving at the people behind them. And they would make eye contact with the people, with the other daveners in the shul. And they would do this every time before they would begin the Amidah. That's a very strange custom because we are used to people getting up, standing, taking three steps back, three steps forward, bending the the, um, Amidah. But to go through a process where you sort of disrupt that very, very formal process that we are used to and wave, essentially, at your fellow worshippers in shul is quite an interesting and um, custom. Indeed. And it's like you mentioned, it seems to go against at least what I've always learned, which is that there's a certain part, you know, by the time you reach that point in the service, you don't interrupt yourself. <laughs> you don't distract yourself and you just continue through and uh, don't make any interruptions before you start the Amida. Exactly. And that's what makes this custom even more interesting because it does seem to be almost subversive in that sense um, because it goes against the way we understand the halacha that there not to be any at that juncture in the um, davening. Right. And so what do we know about the origins of this custom? Because it's unusual to say the least. So there appear to be quite a number of different sources for this custom. Let's just run through briefly some of these origins. So our first source Once again, this is amazing because our first source is found not really in the Sfarim, but it's found in the Bodleian Library, Mm. (laughs) which is an unlikely place. Although, as we've seen many times, it's not really an unlikely place to find interesting things. But there is a manuscript in the Bodleian Library at Oxford. And um, it is a manuscript written by Natan Nata Shapira. Natan Nata Shapira Interesting rabbi, he was one of the main editors of the teachings of the Arizal. Mm-hmm. 
He wrote a work called Mo'orot Natan, and he dies in 1633. He was a rabbi, the chief rabbi of Krakow, and later on he moved to Israel to Palestine, where he became the Ashkenazi rabbi. In, as I say, he was an interesting person because he appears to have been what today we would call a social activist. Right. He criticized the wealthy, and he championed the religious poor of Jerusalem. And he wrote about a time in the future when Mashiach comes, when the Jews of the diaspora would return to Eretz Israel, and they would in fact be in a disadvantaged position because of their affluence and because of their love for money. Hmm. And he goes on to say that only the Jews who sacrificed their wealth and were prepared to go on Aliyah and live in poverty in Eretz Israel would um, experience Tchiasamesim, the revival of the dead. And he spoke about a situation where the affluent Jews would come back after Mashiach, they would come back to Eretz Israel, and they would view the Jews who had lived in poverty in Eretz Israel flying like eagles in the sky. And this was a reward they would experience their Tchiasamesim, in this revival of the dead. This would be a reward for them being prepared to, to, to sacrifice their wealth and live in poverty in Eretz Israel. So Nata Nata Shapiro had some very, very interesting views. Mm-hmm. Um, most people think that the teachings of the Arizal come to us primarily through Rabbi Chaim Vital. Well, they do to a large extent, but they also come from another rabbi, Rabbi Meir Poppers, who's also a great editor of, of Lurianic Kabbalah and the writings of the Arizal. But Nata Nata Shapiro was also a very, very significant contributor, a very, very important editor in terms of bringing the teachings of the Arizal um, to us. So, he writes this work, Mo'orat Natan. It's not available in any book form, but it's available in a manuscript which can be found in the Bodleian Library. And he writes as follows. Um, He talks about the Jews who live in the land of Yishmael. In other words, the Jews who are living in Muslim countries, And he explains this custom, this very strange custom. So this is our earliest reference to the custom of Turkish Jews waving. Okay, so he's referring to the Jews who live in the land of Ishmael in Muslim countries. He says that they turn their faces, they look behind them, and they make a gesture with their hands to the people standing immediately behind them, that they should go in front of them with respect. Okay, now, what does that mean? I'm not entirely sure what it means, but I believe it means that because we have the idea that we don't take someone's space when we daven, we know that we're not allowed to walk in front of someone when they're saying the Amidah. In fact, in some halachic books, even diagrams that show like a whole spectrum, like a whole area where you can't walk in front of someone when busy saying the Shemona Esrei. So... I would imagine that if you're standing in a crowded shul, you automatically would be standing in front of someone else who would be doubling the Amidah behind you. So as, as a courtesy, you turn around to them and you say, okay, I'm standing in front of you. I'm waving as if I'm saying, you know, you come in front of me. It's like two people standing at the door after you, after you, now right. after you. And it all almost seems as if as a courtesy to your fellow worshippers, you're saying, all right, 
you know, if you want to go in front of me, go. Otherwise, if I'm here, I'm just going to go. And, and that's how they begin their, their um, Amida. So that's, that's our first reference. That's our earliest reference, 400-year-old source um, for this custom of, of alien. But Nata, Nata Shapira hasn't finished yet because being of course. a mystic, he has to offer, yes, of course, he has to offer a mystical reason. And he waxes quite lyrical, becomes quite technical, and he speaks about the um, Hasidim, Harishonim, the early Hasidim. Obviously, he lived before the period of the Baal Shem Tov. He's not referring to the way we understand him today. He's talking about the early Hasidim. Had, had a practice to do this particular custom. So already we see um, a fascinating connection, certainly in the eyes of Nata Nata Shapira, that this custom wasn't a new custom. It had been an ancient custom that was practiced by the ancient mystics. Probably just the Jews in the Muslim countries perpetuated the custom, but the custom certainly didn't start with them. It appears to be, according to him, an ancient custom, which had theurgic value, in other words, almost magical value, by doing mm-hmm. the wave, you are in fact bringing the different parts of the Godhead together in the magician. Those different parts of God, there's Zer and Pen and Arich and Pen and various aspects of God, the beginning and the end of God, so to speak, the higher aspects and the lower aspects, parts of God that had been exiled and been separated from other parts of God according to mystical model, you are now bringing them together before you say the Amida, and you achieve that through the um, process of, of um, waving. So that's how, he, that's how he explains the custom. He first gives us the notion that it's a courtesy, and then he gives us a deeper mystical um, reason. And interestingly, he also writes that, there, it, that this, this is the mystical reason, but that people don't remember the mystical reason, right? That the people who practice this custom right. have lost the original reason, and they just kind of do it because it's their tradition to do it. Right. And of, of course, he knows that, that the tradition goes back a lot earlier. Right. Right. And is far, far deeper. Also, because he refers to Jews living in Muslim lands, um, it appears as if he didn't practice the custom himself. But that didn't mean that he didn't see worth in the custom. He just didn't, you know, it, it just wasn't his, his minag because it was a minag of certain Jews, not, not necessary of Ashkenazi Jews. Mm-hmm. But he does make mention of that particular custom. So that's our first reference to waving before the Shema Esrei. Our second source is um, Rabbi Isaac Munas Vias. He dies in 1769. That would have been nine years after the Baal Shem Tov passes away. And he's our second reference, if we trace the paper trail for this custom. He's the second reference. Um, he wrote a, a work called Siach Yitzchak. Siach means the speech of Yitzchak. His name was Isaac or Yitzchak. And Siach Yitzchak stands for the three Talmudic tractates that he spoke about or that he wrote about, Shavuot, Yuman, Chagiga. Mm-hmm. They make the um, acrostic Siach, which just happens to mean the speech, but also stands for those, the first letters of those three tractates. Anyway, over there he writes and he mentions that there's this custom of the Jews who live in the land of Ishmael, and he also basically gives us a reference right back to Nata Nata Shapira and um, 
just mentions that as, as a source. So essentially, he's not really adding anything to the discourse other than he's the second person to mention the um, custom. Our third source is from um, an edition of the Pre-Eitz Chaim, which is basically another name for the same work, Mo'orot Natan, which was printed in um, Koret in 1782. And once again, it makes reference to this um, particular custom. And that's our third source. Our fourth source is from a well-known work, the Kaf HaChaim. Mm-hmm. Many people are familiar with the Kaf HaChaim, written by Rabbi Chaim Palachi. And um, he was a Turkish Jew. Now that's a really interesting because he's writing about a custom that is a Turkish custom. And the first edition of the Kafa Chaim was in 1859. And Rabbi Palachi writes as follows. He says, there is a custom that we make a movement with our hands before the Amidah, this person to that person and that person to that person. And because he's talking about we, he seems to be the first person so far in all of our sources who actually practiced this particular custom. Right, right. And it makes sense because he was a Turkish Jew practicing a Turkish um, custom. All right. He then adds um, a reason for this custom, um, something quite, quite, a, quite original, something that none of the other sources had, had mentioned, a, a bit of a technical reason. And he says that um, certainly in the Amidah for, for Shacharit, just before we say the Amidah, a few lines before we say the Amidah in the morning service, we say, Yachad kulam hodu amru, which talks about the unity of the Jewish people at the crossing of the Red Sea. Yachad, we were all together. And he equates that with this custom of turning around and creating a sense of unity with the other worshippers in the room, where you look at them and you form a unity, a brotherhood, um, a group, and you need that unity before the Amidah. Hmm. Just like before the splitting of the sea, we had unity, almost as if it was the unity that gave us the ability to experience the miracle of the splitting of the sea. So too, we need to recreate that um, as we um, you know, move into the Shemona Esrei now. Obviously, this would apply primarily to the Shachrit service where that verse occurs, but in a very forceful way, in, in a sense, he also connects it to, to the Marif service and the uh, Mincha service where he finds references. One, one, of, one of them is in Ashrei. He says, Vanachnu Nevarechka, at the end of Ashrei, which is just before the Amidat Mincha time, which also right. again, Anachnu talks about unity, and he finds another um, verse in the Marif service, relating to, to unity. So basically, he connects it to the concept of unity before saying the um, Amidah. And thirdly, he gives another reason, Rabbi Palachi in the Kafachaim, he says that we compare ourselves to the angels. The angels take leave of each other before they engage in their personal prayer. It's almost as if they're not quite sure what is going to happen, or the, the, the angels aren't sure what's going to happen during 
the prayers? Would they survive the prayers because of the, the intense spirituality? And they say goodbye because they may never meet again. Hmm. And he says, this is what we do as well. We almost say goodbye and we wave just before we, to the experience of the... Uh... So that's the Kafachaim, Rabbi Chaim Palachi. Our fifth reference is a Syrian rabbi. By the way, when we talk, Jordan, about this custom being a Turkish custom, it's actually a Turkish and a Syrian custom. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a, a Syrian rabbi, a very interesting Syrian rabbi, who was known to be the master of Sigulot. Right. He dies in 1900 and is Rabbi Avram Shalom Hai Hamawi. And Hamawi also writes about this custom of waving. And he says that this custom of waving, if you recall, Nata Nata says that this was practiced in countries, in Muslim countries where it would um, Hamawi writes, this custom is practiced in our land, Aleppo. Mm-hmm. And in most places. In other words, I don't know what he means by most places because we know Jews practice this custom in most places, but perhaps where he was living in most of the places that Hamawi was familiar with, they did have this custom. In other words, it wasn't just Aleppo, it was throughout the whole of Syria, throughout the whole of Turkey. Also, interesting reference to um, our land, Aleppo. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If one follows the news and one knows what's going on in Aleppo today, it's quite hard to imagine that Jews once referred to our land, Aleppo, mm-hmm. which is quite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was a very, and, very vigorous yeah. and very scholarly community in Aleppo for a really, really long time. Like they're not there Correct. anymore. Uh, not there anymore by any means. Followed. Not there anymore. Not there anymore. Yes, I actually read something about some of the American troops in some of these places. And they had found some old books, uh, Hebrew writing that went back also many years. Very, very interesting as well. But uh, yeah, so Aleppo used to be certainly old. The old city of Aleppo used to be, um, used to have tremendous Jewish connections. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not so anymore. But that's what ha- Hamawi writes. And um, Hamawi also gives an explanation. He says that we need to make peace before we daven. We need to make peace with each other. You know, you can't pray fighting with someone, so you need to wave at people. You need to ask for forgiveness, so you wave in case you upset somebody. You're basically showing that there's unity, and you're also asking for forgiveness. You're showing that there's love and um, kingship. And uh, through that schut and that merit, we, we, we hope that our prayer answered. All right, so that, that is the view of Hamawi. Our sixth source is the famous Ben Ishchai. Yes. Ben Ishchai dies in 1909, and um, he writes about the um, Baghdadi custom. Yosef Chaim of Baghdad is known as the Ben Ishchai. Famous Kabbalist, very, very famous Kabbalist. And he talks about the Sfaradim. The custom of the Sfaradim. Now, when the Benish Chai talks about the Sfaradim, we're not always sure what does he mean. Does he mean the Sfaradim as in the Oriental Jews, the Jews who live in Iraq, or does he refer to the Spanish Jews? Right. So we're never really sure who, which Sfaradim he's referred to. Mm-hmm. But he does talk about the custom of the, the Sfaradim. 
And what they do is just before they start to pray, i.e. before they say the Amidah, they turn their face back a little way and they make a gesture with their hands to the people standing behind them and at their sides. And once again, if you look at the Benishchai's words, he seems to be excluding himself from the category because he doesn't say we. He took custom of the Sephardim, implying that it's not really a custom of the Iraqi Jews. Mm-hmm. And that's borne out by the fact that the Iraqi Jews don't have that custom. So he does seem to be referring perhaps to Spanish Jews who may have had this custom as well. In other words, it wasn't only the um, Turkish Jews. But be that as it may, the Benish Chai offers an explanation for this custom of waving. And in a way, much like Hamawi, he says, we're mimicking the um, angels. We're creating a sense of unity as well. He also quotes Nata Nata Shapira, who he says gives the real reason according to Sod. And then he adds something interesting. The Benish Chai says that because Nata Nata Shapiro gave us a reason based on Sod, Remember, we spoke about that right in the beginning. We have the different aspects of the Godhead that have been separated. You join them together before you say the Amidah. So the Benish Chai says that because we have a reason based on sword, in other words, it's not just the notion of creating peace and harmony and mimicking the angels, but it's actually theurgic. There's a value. There's a mystical value to performing this custom. He says that even if no one else is in the room, let's say you're dabbing by yourself, You still do it. (laughs) Yes, you still do it because you're still able to affect this um, um, mystical um, um, uh, unification of the um, Godhead. Okay, so those are are six sources, which, which, which again, I think, Jordan, you would agree, that's quite interesting that we found six sources. I've tried to go through quickly. But we, we have six sources... Uh, which which include Kabbalistic reasons mm-hmm. for a custom that most people have never heard of. <laughs> right. It's and just... not, not only that, not only six sources, but the Kaf HaChaim and the Ben Ishchai, which are both extremely highly renowned and commonly studied works, in especially in the Sephardi world, but elsewhere as well, right? These are not minor sources. Right, right. And Nata Nata Shapiro, you know, the representative of the Kabbalah of the Arizal as well. Exactly. And, and, and connecting it to, to sword shows that it has a very, very foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Levi Cooper makes an interesting observation at this stage. He says he can understand why Ashkenazi Jews are not familiar with custom. Although we know Nata, Nata Shapiro, Ashkenazi rabbi, and he was very familiar with this custom. But he did mention that it was practiced in Muslim countries. Okay. But Kufa says he can understand that Ashkenazim don't know this. But what bothers him is why then do the Sephardim not know this? Hmm. Right. So this brings us to a very fascinating section of the discussion because it involves Rabbi Ovadia Yosef. Now, we know that Rabbi Ovadio Yosef was the Sephardic chief rabbi mm-hmm. between 1973 and 1983. And Ovadio Yosef wrote about this as well. So we have our seventh source. <laughs> Ovadio Yosef writes about this custom of waving, but he's not positive about it. So the previous six sources were rather positive, 
But Ovadia Yosef is not positive about him at all. And I should add, I think Rav Ovadia was himself Iraqi in origin, I believe, right? Yes, I believe so. Mm-hmm. I think that's why he wore that... Um, the um, turban, yes. The turban, yes. Um, Ovadia Yosef writes that one should be careful with this custom of waving before the Amidah. But interestingly, he only refers to Mincha and to Ma'ariv. Mm-hmm. Why does he say that? Because it's only in Mincha and Ma'ariv that we say a Kaddish before the Amidah. At Shachrit, there's no Kaddish before the Amidah. Say, Baruch Hashem, Gal Yisrael, and we move straight on. Shmon there's no Kaddish at Shachrit. Mm-hmm. But there's a Kaddish before the Shmon Esrei and at Ma'ariv. So he says we should be particularly mm-hmm. careful not to wave, not to wave. So he's the first source that's told us not to wave. Interesting, he's, he's probably the newest source. Um, our oldest source is about 400 years old. He's the newest source, but he's the first person to tell us not to do this ancient custom. Why does he say that we shouldn't wave? So he tells us, again, a, a technical reason. He says because you're about to begin the Amidah, but before the Amidah you're saying... Kaddish, and we know Kaddish is a serious prayer. We don't want any distractions. If you're going to be turning around and waving at your friend and winking and you know moving your hand back and forth, while the chazan saying Kaddish, you might not say Amen, Yehesh, Mei Rabba, sufficient kavana with sufficient concentration. It's mm-hmm. a distraction anyway before the Amidah, and you're certainly disrupting the Kaddish at least. And therefore, he says that we should not, we should not practice this. Certainly not at Mincha, not at um, Mm-hmm. So once again, once again, we, we have all our previous six sources telling us how this custom was a preparation for the Amidah, whether it was social or theurgic, or just like a zecher to remind us of the um, angels. But here he's actually telling us, or Vadi Yosef is telling us that this custom is actually a hindrance. It's something that should not be practiced because it will interfere with our intense concentration, which we need to keep all that particular part of um, Daphne. Hmm. Um, now, it's interesting. You know, you, you could take Ovadia Yosef just at face value. He's, he's concerned about um, a, a halachic technicality. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, there, there does appear to be something else going going on over here because all the other sources, as, as, as I said, going going back 400 years, quoting Kabbalah and quoting all the people and well-known people, as you mentioned, we're all quite happy with this source. Right. It is possible that we need to view Rav Ovadia's view regarding this Turkish custom against a far wider Yes. Against a political backdrop that Ovadia Yosef was well known. Um, 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 his, his desire, in a sense, to create unity, particularly amongst the Jews of Sephardic origin. Yes. He yes. was prepared very often to sacrifice individual communities that had come from 
North Africa, from Iran, from Iraq, from Syria, from Turkey, to create a homogenous community of, of uh, Sfaradim. And um, he, he has been criticized quite severely for that because many, many people felt that he was disrespectful to the individual customs that had been perpetuated for centuries, sometimes at great expense. Um, mm-hmm. And these customs were upheld by these Jews living in these far-flung places for so many, many years. And now, with a brush of his hand, he was uh, quite, quite prepared to be, just ignore all of that and create a uh, one, one-size-fits-all sort of like a Minak Eretz Israel in a sense. Uh, you know, th- th- this is how we're going to do it from, from now on. The Jews from North Africa, the Jews from, from Arab countries, we're going to ignore the individual traditions. Right. And he did this in quite, 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 a, real, quite a real way because he wrote a work called Halichot Olam. Ovadia Yosef wrote an eight-volume work called Halichot Olam. And this was a detailed response to the one volume, Ben Ishchai, by the Baghdadi rabbi Yosef Chaim, hmm. the famous Chai. So Ben Ishchai writes one volume, and Ovadia Yosef writes eight volumes. So he's attacking the customs of the Ben Ishchai with a ratio of eight to one. Mm-hmm. And he deals with all the points that are mentioned in the Ben, in the ben Ishchai point by point. And his he's, um, uh, work, Halichot Olam, was actually written when he was a very young man. They were only published 60 years later when he was really in a position of power. But they were taken from his writings when he was a young man and had given a couple of controversial public talks. But they hadn't been published for 60 years. Now that he was a chief rabbi and he was in a position of power, he felt comfortable to publicize his, his particular work. And it was there that he writes that this custom should not be um, perpetuated. And he goes on to say that one who warns others, um, their, peace should in, their peace should increase like a river. In other words, one should almost be evangelical in a, in a way when it comes to um, stopping this custom from mm. being practiced because it is an incorrect custom. It's not a good custom. So he was quite prepared to eradicate a custom that was certainly well over 100 years old. Because remember, Natanata mentioned that, that this was a custom of the, of the Hasim Harishonim, which go back you know, further. We could probably say that this custom was maybe a 1,000 years old even. Mm-hmm. And here, Ovadia Yosef is quite prepared to just let that custom go And as Cooper says, the colorful mosaic of Jewish practice was whitewashed um, by the Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel in order to create cultural melting pot. One explanation that I've read of Rav Ovadia's approach was that he sought to, that the the expulsion from Sfarad in the 1400s, in the late 1400s, was like a breach that 
took a formerly unified, cohesive set of minhagim and, you know, basically like a piece of glass, you know, smashing it into a billion little pieces by spreading the Sephardi world, you know, the people of the Sephardi world all around the Mediterranean basin, you know, from which they developed all these individual customs. And he was trying to repair that breach, as it were, by sort of reunifying Sephardi practice under the um, a kind of authoritative set of guidelines as you know, written down in the Shulchan Aruch, and to try to, like, as you say, to kind of whitewash out the mosaic that had developed as as Sephardi communities developed independently of one another on all these different dispersed lands, which is a it's an interesting way of putting. It. He, I, the, this explanation, I wish I could remember where I read it was that it was the the expulsion from Spain was this kind of um, fragmentary event that Ravovadia was trying to reverse and bring back to its original state. You know, um, I would have to say that I, 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 mean, I, I found it a fascinating in, interpretation. I, I, I haven't heard that before, but I must say in, in, in the interest of honesty that that sounds almost um, apologetical. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, to, to me, it sounds very similar to what else Ovadia Yosef said when, when, when he spoke about abolishing this Turkish custom. He said that um, the Benishchai appeared to him in a dream. Mm. Yes. After he had attacked him and came back and said, "No, what you did was right. I I agree with you." Now, there's no ways we could ever know whether he actually had that dream or whether the Benishchai actually came back in the dream. I mean, you know, the, the, we can't really deal with information like that. So I don't know how we would assimilate uh, the notion, you know that you've just explained so, so eloquently about the fragmentation that took place after the question. But yes, I mean, certain people, certain people, I, I think, would, would find that meaningful. And I, I think other people would, would uh, question um, the veracity of such a nation. Uh, you know, did he have a political agenda that perhaps overshadowed everything else? Yeah, you know, people would have to decide for themselves. Mm-hmm. In the end, the, the legacy is still unfolding, as you write, because Ravovadia's task was not completed in its entirety, and, and there is still some interest in preserving some of these older customs that he had discouraged. Yeah, so I think whenever you put a people down in one form or another, there's always pushback, right. some kind of a backlash. So we see that in 2006... Um, some Turkish Jews got together and they printed a, a Turkish sidur, a Turkish prayer book, that, which is based on the rules of the Kafa Chaim by the Turkish rabbi, Chaim Palachi. And um, it did include the custom to wave, <laughs> almost Afka. But that was a private printing. <laughs> For some reason, the sidur had never been reprinted after that. So a little bit of intrigue. One wonders what was actually going on there. But what is interesting, though, is that if you go to Turkey today, both on the European side and the Anatolian side of the city, mm-hmm. Turkish Jews still wave. Mm. And if you go apparently to Syrian and to Turkish communities in North America, apparently some in those communities, some of Jews still wave, which I think is a wonderful 
um, gesture, uh, pun included, mm-hmm. showing support of their very, very old custom and uh, keeping a custom that they had kept for, for so many, many centers. And in a way, it, it's a very, very beautiful custom. Mm-hmm. What I find... Also, tremendously intriguing, and I think if, if I could just end with this, Gordon, of course, is that I've um, just completed a series of shirim regarding the halachas of um, davening and shul and uh, hilchot tefillah and the halachas of Shmon Esrei, and the laws are very, very strict when it comes to you know not talking between Baruch Shamar and the and the Shmon Esrei. And as we get closer to the Shema and the Shmon Esrei, the laws become even stricter. And the strictest part is that section just after the Shema and just before the Shmon Esrei. Mm-hmm. After we've said Baruch Gal Yisrael, we're not supposed to talk. Some people even say Amen after that Baruch. Um, yet at that part where we are most strict, at that part, that is Dafka, where this custom was inserted. Mm-hmm. And one wonders whether that was by accident or by design. Because this notion of not greeting people at certain parts of the service, look, I practice it. That's the halacha. There's nothing that one can do about it. But I must just say, this last Shabbos, we, we had um, a family who came into our show. They were quite an assimilated family. Um, they, they had just experienced the loss. They hadn't been to shul for many, many years, and they came into shul. Of course, they walked into shul just before, I'm about to say, the Shimon Esrei. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what does one do? They walk right past me, and, you know, I, I, I can't get up. I, I can't shake their hand. I, I, I can't greet them. I can't talk to them. I, I, you know, what do I do? And, and, and I've, I've, I've always wondered, you know, people come, come into shul and, you know, it's fine if you're in an unfriendly shul and people just say, you know, good job, good job, and, you know, they, they nod and they don't really care and people walk by and nobody greets each other. But in, you know, in other communities, uh, uh, it, it, it just doesn't seem to sit well. So I, I found this custom really, really amazing because at that point where we're supposed to be most strict about not having interruptions, not only do we wave, but if I can quote the Kafachaim, the Kafachaim says that we make a movement with our hands and call one to another. Hmm. You know, it's almost implying that we, we, we're breaking the silence and we're actually speaking. Yeah, he says, and we call one to I don't know whether it's literal calling or whether it's figurative. Nonetheless, whatever it is, we, we're doing a, a, a tremendous gesture. We are waving at somebody. Um, we are making eye contact with them. Mm-hmm. We're acknowledging that those within our immediate vicinity are important. We need we need you know, to acknowledge them and they need to acknowledge us just at that moment Yes, before moving on to the Amidah. They say, you know, I've heard Jewish prayer explained, especially to non-Jews, as that Jews pray alone together, <laughs> right? So that yeah. even, even when we're, you <laughs> right. know, even when we're in shul and we're about to say the, Shemona, the silent Shemona Esrei, we're still together even if everyone is in their own, you know, everyone has their own is responsible for their own kavana. This is kind of like a an acknowledgement just before we embark on that journey of saying the Shmona Esrei that hey, we're actually together, even though we're about to pray alone, yeah. we're together. I think yeah. I agree with yeah. you. There's something yeah. very nice about that. 
Yes, yes, yes. There, there is something very nice about that. Um, yes. it, it, it's a beautiful custom. Uh, and, you know, despite what everybody um, has written about it, and besides those for and against, particularly those against it, had, had, had written it, it's, it's, it's heartwarming to see that the Turkish Jews indeed still wave after all this time. Yes, very nice. Maybe someday I'll get to see that in person because uh, it'd be really fascinating. I'd love to see it too. I've never yeah. seen it and I really would love to see Yeah. Maybe we should institute this in our rules, this Shabbos story. <laughs> Give it a try. I you think have we'll a sh- start with you and if there's any backlash, you know, if there's no backlash, I'll, I'll, I'll institute it as well. Okay. Well, we have to wait for the shuls to reopen here as a as a as a first right. step because that's not really happening yet. But okay. okay. Thank you very much, Gavin. Right. This was interesting. I, I really enjoyed learning about this. Mm, lovely to talk to you again, Jordan. Thank you so much. Take care.